You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grasso from Bloomberg Radio. The House is poised to impeach President Trump and quickly, warning he is a threat to democracy. Trump faces a single charge, incitement of insurrection, and the House will begin debating Wednesday. Joining me is an expert in impeachment law, Frank Bowman, a professor at the University of Missouri Law School. So this would be the second time in about a year that President Trump is impeached. Is there any impediment to impeaching a president for a second time? Any difference? No. Constitutionally, you could impeach a president every day of the week and twice on Sunday. So it's entirely within the purview of the, of the House to do that. What about impeaching him at this particular time where he has so few days left in office? Well, there's a couple of questions that you can ask about that. I mean, one, is it possible to do this in this sense? Plainly, what's going to happen right now is that there is going to be an impeachment, but there's already been an impeachment resolution introduced. It will be voted on, I expect, before a couple of days are out. And then, of course, the question is when a Senate trial might occur. Now, we know that it is not going to occur potentially prior to the inauguration of President Biden, because, among other reasons, Senator McConnell essentially said as much, put out a memo on the potential timing of, of the Senate trial, which essentially says, you know, at least in effect, he says, while I'm the Senate majority leader, we ain't having any, any impeachment trials over here, which means that any trial would have to occur after the 20th. And so the question might arise in people's minds, well, can you constitutionally try a person, president or any other civil officer who's subject to impeachment? Can you can you try them after they're out of office? It's an interesting question, but there are sound reasons to believe that that's perfectly appropriate. As it happens, I and, and, and Professor Brian Colt have a piece in the Washington Post coming out shortly discussing that point. But the long and the short of it is that there's no obvious constitutional impediment to having a trial after someone's left office. Not only are there some precedents for that, but there's a very sound sort of constitutional, structural, originalist kind of argument for that point. And that argument stems from the available penalties for impeachment, which are two of the Constitution, removal from office, which is automatic on conviction. And second, if someone is impeached and convicted, then on a second vote, the Senate can decide to impose the remedy, the penalty of disqualification from ever again holding an office of honor or profit under the 
the United States, meaning, practically speaking, that President Trump couldn't run again for office in 2024, as you've indicated he would like to do. So there is a practical reason for going forward, and I think it's pretty clear that the reason the framers put this remedy in was not merely as a deterrent to bad behavior while people are in office, but also it was a recognition that certain people may prove themselves by their conduct to represent a continuing danger to the republic such that they really need to be banned from a public life, at least in the sense of participation in the national government. And if anybody ever qualified for that remedy, I would think it would be Donald Trump. So there are precedential reasons for thinking that it's perfectly appropriate to go ahead with a trial after he's out of office. And there, I think, are pretty darn good reasons to go ahead and do that in order to, to remove him from the possibility of ever returning to the White House. If he is impeached, does he lose the bells and whistles that go with being a former president, like Secret Service protection? I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I've been asked that several times today, and there are some uh, statutes or regulations that seem to cover that, but I don't know what's in them, and so I'm not going to presume to tell you because I don't know. One of the reasons given for not starting an impeachment is that this would really sort of bog down President-elect Biden's first days in office and stop him from perhaps doing some of the things that he wants to do. Is that a good reason for not impeaching Trump? I have re- really wrestled with this question. In fact, now it seems a thousand years ago, but it was only 48 hours ago, I put something up on Twitter laying out essentially an argument for that very proposition, the notion that there is some risk that this process really would gum up the work and prevent not only President Biden, but Congress from pursuing the urgent priorities that, that face us. You know, an ongoing plague and, frankly, the project of undoing the damage that Mr. Trump and his minions have done to this country over the last four years. There's a huge amount of work to be done. To a certain extent, I mean, we don't want to be consumed with you know, dealing with this guy a moment longer than we have to be. And I, and I get that. But in the end, I guess I've come down on, on the side of thinking that what he's done is so serious because it, it goes far beyond the events of, of November the 6th tragic, horrifying, and unprecedented that they were. November the 6th was the culmination of a two-month-long attempt to steal an American election to essentially, through force, fraud, propaganda, pressure, and in the end, mob violence, overturn a legitimate election and maintain Donald Trump as literally an unelected autocrat. I think that requires a response from Congress. Frank, Congressman Jim Clyburn has suggested impeaching President Trump and then waiting a few months to refer the impeachment to the Senate for trial. I'd say two things. First of all, if the Senate wanted to, they could move an impeachment through to trial very, very quickly. Now, that would require the, the will of the supermajority to essentially change or waive some timing rules and, and, and move forward at you know, warp speed. But the truth of the matter is that both houses can do that kind of thing when they want to. Right? I mean, they can... They can do things in hours if they want to that somehow or other otherwise take months. So I'm I'm not as concerned about that as I might be. Now, the idea that that Congressman Clyburn, who I have the utmost respect for, has put forward of pushing this back until after Biden's 100 days, I have to say I'm a little less enthusiastic about that, uh, if only because 
if there's any chance to actually convict Donald Trump and to really completely get him out of our hair forever, I think that chance exists now um, while the memory of the horrors of January the 6th are fresh um, in the minds of particularly Republican senators. The fear they felt, the sense of betrayal that I hope they felt. And I kind of fear that if we wait too long for a trial and Congress gets back into, you know, as inevitably it will, the normal rhythms of partisan competition and everybody's signing up on different teams and so forth and so on. But three months from now, trying to recapture the very proper momentum for acting and acting quickly is likely to be lost. But nobody listens to me on Capitol Hill, so (laughs) they're going to do what they want. So let's discuss the resolution proposing an article of impeachment. It would be a single charge of incitement of insurrection. How do you view having a single charge? There's nothing wrong with a single charge. I think the allegations that it makes are certainly factually correct. They certainly state a case for impeachment under the Constitution, but the allegations are plainly of high crimes and misdemeanors. There's not a doubt of that in the world. I have argued that a narrow focus on November the 6th, and in particular, the claim that Trump should be impeached because he incited something called an insurrection may not be the wisest or most prudent approach, because both of those terms, incitement and insurrection, have technical meanings. Incitement certainly at least implies some kind of mental state, some kind of desire on the part of the inciter to cause something called an insurrection or, or to cause even less than that, to cause violence. And while I think, you know, what Mr. Trump did, not only on January 6th, but in the weeks and months before that, certainly to any reasonable mind, was foreseeably likely to produce violence, it's awfully hard to prove that he wanted violence, that he sought violence, that he sought to pressure the Congress of the United States not to perform its constitutional duty is undeniable. And that's plainly an impeachable offense. But I fear that the House has set up for itself, and more importantly for its managers when they go over to the the Senate, a much rougher task than they needed to. So I'm concerned about the particular form that 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 this article will take, even though it's entirely justifiable on the facts and on the Constitution. And I will certainly urge that anyone who will listen to vote in favor of it. I just think that the House may have made it harder than it ought to have been. So what would you suggest for articles of impeachment in this instance? Well, I laid out very recently in a long article in the, in the online magazine Just Security uh, the, case, the constitutional case for impeachment of, of Donald Trump. And essentially, the argument is that over the last few months, Donald Trump has engaged in a concerted scheme to overturn a, a, a lawful election. Um, in a whole variety of different ways, uh, notably including, for example, the recorded phone call to the Secretary of State in Georgia, which he's plainly trying to, 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 to induce that official to change the lawful election results. He promoted uh, all sorts of utterly unfounded conspiracy theories. Um, he sought to, <laughs> he all but ordered Vice President Pence to refuse to perform his constitutional duty and to assume uh, powers that he plainly does not have, which is essentially to declare Trump the winner. Um, and in the end, of course, uh, he he called for uh, you know people to gather to place pressure on Congress to 
to overturn the results of the election. Now, all of that is collectively is an undeniable assault on the core of American democracy, which is to say, you know, the, the sanctity of elections and the will of the people. Um, what happened on January the 6th was horrific in and of itself, and frankly, in and of itself, perhaps deserves impeachment. But I think it was only the culmination uh, of a much larger scheme of events, which, and to prove that, you don't have to rely on, you know, pettifogging quibbles about the man's mental state at a particular moment standing on a particular podium. And therefore, I think the one or more articles of impeachment ought to be introduced uh, that lay out the broader effort to attack electoral democracy. And, and, and I've urged people on the Hill to do that. Um, I think the, the, the imperatives of time, understandably, have moved them away from that. And they've done what they've done. Um, I would have preferred that they do otherwise, but I got no vote. <laughs> and, and I certainly support the resolution as it stands uh, and would urge anyone you know, in Congress, House or Senate, to vote for it. In this resolution, it cites the 14th Amendment that anyone who is engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States can't hold office in the future. What's the point of citing the 14th Amendment there? How to, how to phrase this? You want to phrase it nicely or not so nicely? How to phrase this politely? I think it is an error because it forced, it's going to it's going to drive this conversation and debates about the histo- history of the Fourteenth Amendment and the Civil War and whether what happened on you know, on January the sixth is the equivalent of you know, the South rising against the Union um, because that's plainly the context in which you know, the Fourteenth Amendment is passed, including Section Three. Uh, it is a wholly unnecessary diversion, and I wish to God they had not put it in there. But, you know, I don't think, nonetheless, I don't think that one has to, you read the rest of the resolution, I don't think one has to conclude that what happened on the 6th was the equivalent of the Civil War to, to convict him, but I think it was a major tactical mistake. Let's say this: they pass this to the Senate, and then as soon as Chuck Schumer becomes majority leader, they start the impeachment trial. Won't that allow Trump and his attorneys to, who knows what antics they'll try to capture the attention of the public again and to push that message? That might be harmful to the country moving on, and it will just sort of resurrect everything that could be buried at this point. I think that's a fair concern, but I I guess I'd respond in more or less the the same way as I did before. This stuff happened. I mean, reflect on this a moment. For two months, the president of the United States actively attacked American democracy. Think about that. He lied. He induced others to lie. He attempted to pressure public officials. He attempted to attack American democracy. And then he incited a mob. And, and, and here's the key thing about that mob is that those people, although I do not for one moment sympathize with what they did, I at least understand to the extent that I think the vast majority, probably all of them, genuinely believed the lies that Trump and those who abetted him were telling about the election. They were there because they believed, they believed, that American democracy had been stolen in any different kind of way that vast shadowy forces had somehow or other stolen 
Trump's election without, of course, leaving any evidence they actually had. But they believe that. And the fact that they believe that is Trump's responsibility, as well as those who supported him and, and abetted all this foolishness. I don't think that we can simply say, oh, well, that's, that's so last week. Let's just pretend it didn't happen and move on. Let's not put this um, at the center of our discussion. God knows we need, do need to move on. God knows we need to, to, to deal with so many other things. But we almost lost America. If it had not been, frankly, for the moral courage of a mere handful of largely Republican state officials, we might have lost it. Because it's certainly clear that for a while there were elements in the Congressional Republican Party who were prepared to go along with this. <laughs> Remember that after, after the heart of democracy was physically breached and they were themselves threatened with death, two-thirds of the Republican caucus nonetheless came back and voted to sustain the, the objections to the electoral count. Consider that. Two-thirds of the elected members of the Republican portion of the House of Representatives, after nearly being killed by violent insurrectionists, were prepared nonetheless to go back and sustain an entirely false theory about what has happened uh, over the last two months. That is a matter that cannot be forgotten and must be examined. Uh, it, it, we have to deal with this as a people. If we just forget about it, if we just put it in the rearview mirror and sort of pretend that, you know, that this cancer is not there, it will kill us. And I think part of the thing that you have to do in order to avoid, you know, this cancer killing us is to confront it, to cut it out. Part of that job is, is to deal with it in the light of day. Thanks, Frank. That's Professor Frank Bowman of the University of Missouri Law School. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. The mayor of D.C., Muriel Bowser, is asking the federal government for help in securing the nation's capital on Inauguration Day in order to prevent a repeat of last week's attack on the U.S. Capitol. Bowser said she's asked the president to use the same tool the feds used to secure President Barack Obama's inauguration in 2009. This is necessary because the inauguration poses several unprecedented challenges that exceed the scope of our traditional planning processes. Federal and local authorities have arrested almost 100 people who they said were involved in the attack as more graphic details of the violence and brutality continue to emerge. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at McCarter in English. Bob, we're hearing about more and more arrests, including arrests of two of the men who were seen carrying zip ties. They're facing charges of knowingly entering a restricted building violent entry and disorderly conduct on Capitol grounds. Why aren't these people being charged with sedition conspiracy? Well, it certainly seems like the elements of seditious conspiracy could be made out based upon the evidence that we know about a number of the individuals who stormed the Capitol building. In order to prove a crime of seditious conspiracy, all you have to show is that two more people 
agree to try to interfere with the central functions of our government. And it specifically contemplates in that statute that it's a crime to delay or hinder the enforcement of the laws. In this case, it was clear that the individuals were storming the Capitol building in order to prevent Congress from carrying out its constitutional duty to formalize President-elect Joe Biden's uh, election victory. So it seems that the elements of seditious conspiracy have been made out. But at this point, those individuals have been charged with just routine breaking and entering uh, restricted buildings, violent entry and disorderly conduct type offenses. We'll have to see whether federal prosecutors add more serious charges at some point in the future. What possible charges could President Trump face for his part in inciting his supporters to march on the Capitol? It seems unlikely that President Trump is going to be charged with inciting a riot based upon the speeches that led up to the individual storming the Capitol building. But there certainly could be evidence to charge him based upon what we know. The president's comments in terms of timing came shortly before a pro-Trump mob bashed through the barricades and windows of the Capitol building, injuring police officers and temporarily occupying the Capitol building. And if you incite someone to commit a crime, if that is your intent, which would be the central issue in such a charge, then you can be held responsible for that conduct. Some of the statements that were made at that rally, particularly, for example, the statements made by Trump's attorney, Rudy Giuliani, where he called for trial by combat, really comes very close and probably crosses the line in terms of egregious conduct that is inciting individuals to riot. So the real question here is whether or not there was intent by President Trump, by Rudy Giuliani, and by some of the other speakers to incite a riot, whether they knew that the comments that they were making would lead others to commit violent acts. Let's turn to pardons for a moment, because according to Bloomberg sources, President Trump is considering pardoning his family members and Rudy Giuliani. Would that pardon wipe out any charges in connection with the riot? The president has the power to pardon any individual for federal criminal violations. And in this case, these would be federal violations because they occurred on federal property. So there would be the opportunity for the president to potentially pardon those who made statements that led to this mob violence. These would be preemptive pardons because they haven't been charged yet. There have been preemptive pardons in the past. For example, Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon preemptively. That's never been challenged. But is it possible to challenge that? Oh, absolutely. Prosecutors could challenge these preemptive pardons. But the president does have enormous pardon power. And I think that even preemptive pardons for individuals not including the president himself, are likely to stand up in court. A preemptive pardon, what would it look like, let's say, against Ivanka Trump? So what would it look like? I pardon her for anything that she's done in the past four years? How would how would you frame that? Well, it would be a real challenge. And when we have seen preemptive challenges in the past, they've been much more specific. And generally, remember, they're not preemptive pardons. These are pardons for crimes that have been charged, and individuals usually have already spent time in prison, and the pardon occurs after that. But to preemptively pardon somebody for a vague 
crime that they, that has not yet been committed puts the individual in a bit of an awkward situation because it suggests that they committed some kind of crime. So I think it's going to be a real challenge if the president tries to preemptively pardon family members for vague, unspecified crimes that have not been charged by any prosecutor. There's also speculation, in fact, Nancy Pelosi speculated this on, on 60 Minutes, that the president might try to pardon everyone involved in storming of the Capitol. Can that be done? Well, that's a good question. That would certainly be unprecedented. I think there'd be enormous political backlash, certainly, from that. But again, it's possible. These are specified criminal charges uh, that have already been brought, and the president certainly could pardon those individuals that have already been charged for these violations. Bloomberg sources say that President Trump is considering pardoning himself. First of all, where does the legal weight of authority land as far as a president pardoning himself? Well, there is no clear answer on whether or not a president can pardon himself because it's been it's never been done before. The closest we've come to that, of course, is when Gerald Ford became president of the United States upon Richard Nixon's resignation and then immediately pardoned Nixon after he became president. But that's a case where you have a president pardoning another individual, and that's something that would likely be on solid legal ground. But a self-pardon here is something that's never been tested before, and it's very unclear as to whether or not that would ultimately hold up. There are many legal experts who say that a self-pardon is really inimical to our system of justice because it would allow a president to essentially escape all liability for his or her conduct, first by being unable to be indicted while they are in office, which is something that has been, uh, which is something that has been stated in the Department of Justice memorandum. It's not something that is within the Constitution, but the Department of Justice has long taken the position that a sitting president cannot be indicted. If you were to add to that the possibility that the president could pardon him or herself to prevent prosecution for any violations after they left office, that would leave a situation in which the president was basically above the law. They could not be charged with a crime either while they were in office or after they left. And there are many legal scholars who believe that that is simply not what the founding fathers intended and that ultimately the Supreme Court would strike down a self-pardon. I'm curious about one thing. Everyone cites an Office of Legal Counsel opinion when saying that a president can't be indicted while in office. But there's also an Office of Legal Counsel opinion that says a president can't pardon himself, isn't there? So why isn't that being touted as the rule? Well, no, that's exactly right. There was a 1974 memo citing the fundamental rule that no one may be a judge in his own case. And that memo concluded that the president cannot pardon himself. So in that case, the Department of Justice internal memoranda is contrary to the position they took about charging a sitting president with a crime. In that case, the Department of Justice concluded that a sitting president cannot be charged with a crime, but they likewise concluded that once a president left office, the president cannot pardon himself to avoid any future criminal prosecution. So this, this would be a test case in which the courts would have to decide. These internal DOJ memoranda are not binding legal precedent. They're not something that the courts have to consider. So we certainly expect any challenge to the president's self-pardon power 
to ultimately be decided by the Supreme Court. And in this case, the Supreme Court would be making new law, deciding whether the president truly was above the law and could pardon himself from any and all crimes that occurred before he left office. The best way to challenge a president's self-pardon is by charging him with something and then fighting the self-pardon and having it go through the courts. Would encourage prosecutors to charge him if he issues a self-pardon. A self-pardon does raise the very interesting question as to whether or not it would ultimately be self-defeating in the sense that a move by President Trump to pardon himself would in some ways create the invitation to test in court the limits of the president's power to issue pardons. While there are some legal observers who believe that the president could pardon himself and there's no downside to that, it would ultimately be tested in the courts and would certainly drag out any potential prosecution of him after he left office. There are others who look at that and say that it's essentially putting a bullseye on the president by inviting prosecutors to test those legal limits and really creating a situation in which prosecutors would have to go out of their way to try to bring those charges in order to see whether or not this president's self-pardon would ultimately stand up in court. There are reports that President-elect Joe Biden doesn't want to pursue prosecution of Trump for several reasons, that it would take away from his starting his administration and put the focus on the old administration, but also that it would set a precedent of prosecuting political opponents. Do you think it would set a precedent? The incoming Biden administration is seeming to take the position that they would like to be forward-looking and are not eager to prosecute President Trump for any federal criminal violations. The concern there is that it would tear the country further apart It would create a precedent that could be dangerous in the sense that you have an incoming administration turning around and immediately prosecuting the outgoing administration, something we've never seen in this country before. So I think we will see the Department of Justice that comes in during the Biden administration be somewhat reluctant to pursue federal criminal charges against President Trump and some of his allies. On the other hand, You do have state criminal charges that still loom out there for President Trump and certain of his family members, something that the Department of Justice and President-elect Biden cannot control. There are ongoing investigations by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and by the New York Attorney General's Office. Those decisions about prosecutions will be decided by the Attorney General and the District Attorney in Manhattan, something that the White House can control, and we'll just have to see how those play out. And Bob, elaborate a little bit on the question of inciting mob violence versus free speech. The question of inciting mob violence versus free speech is an interesting issue here. And there are many who have pointed out that the president certainly did not explicitly ask individuals to commit violent acts. But in this case, in order to prove incitement of mob violence, prosecutors don't necessarily have to prove that the accused person made a specific call for criminal activity, only that the person had the intent to spark such criminal conduct. So in this case, it's not necessary that prosecutors, if they were decided to pursue criminal charges based upon incitement, they don't have to show that there is a specific request that violent acts take place. A jury could possibly make a decision and find an individual guilty for criminal incitement 
if a reasonable person would have known that their comments would lead to those violent acts. It really here is a question of context and it's a question of criminal intent. The real question here is what was the intent of the individuals speaking, President Trump, Rudy Giuliani, and others? Were those words spoken in a context in which it can be inferred that it was their intent to incite violent action? That's ultimately the question that a jury would have to ask if criminal charges were to be brought for inciting mob violence. Thanks, Bob. That's former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at Carter in English. Coming up next on Bloomberg Law, President Trump's second impeachment seems imminent. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com.